was sitting at my desk at work this week, I think it was Tuesday, when my phone rang. I picked up the phone, and on the other end of the line was uh, a guy named Tim. He's the administrative director at our foster agency here in Bowling Green. He said, hey, I've got a referral here for you guys. In foster care lingo, what that means is Tim found out about a kid who needs help. He, he was alerted to a situation where, where a child is in a situation. Um, their, their parents can't care for them anymore. And uh, the, the child needed to be removed for their safety. And the question is, hey, Greg, hey, Bethany, is this the, um, a situation that you could help out with? Um, as he started talking, he explained the situation. And the first thing he said was this. She's three. She turned three this summer. And um, I've got a three-year-old girl who, who turned three this summer. And so for the rest of our conversation, it was hard for me to think of anything other than my Lily in the situation uh, that he was about to describe it. And this is what he said. He said she was born with opiates in her system, uh, that her mother's heroin addiction led to a complicated pregnancy, which meant there was a very low birth weight, with, which meant there's many significant medical issues with this child. Uh, he explained to me that she's eating through a feeding tube, that she frequently needs oxygen treatment to go to sleep. And as he's saying all this, I'm picturing my lily laying down in her bed with an oxygen mask on. He listed four or five chronic diseases and syndromes that she's suffering from her inner digestive system and her pulmonary system. He explained that in her home, she isn't getting the medicine she needs. She isn't getting the attention she needs. She's not getting the care that she needs. That even though her lungs are barely working, her parents can't, won't stop smoking in the house. Um, as he's saying all this, I'm imagining Lily gasping for air, trying to fight for that next breath. Even though she needs constant medical care and attention, her parents are absent. Each one of them strung out on their drug of choice. Now, this little girl ended up on Tim's radar because she had been hospitalized for the last few days. She was ready now to, to be discharged into a safe family. And as he's saying all this, I'm imagining Lily laying in a hospital bed alone, wondering what's next, struggling. I stood up from my desk at work. I called Bethany. We had a conversation. I filled her in on the details. See, we needed to decide if this was something we could help with. And uh, before we made a decision, uh, they, they found a, a home for this girl, a solid Christian home in Ohio that's ready to take on this challenge. And I praise God for that. She's got a long road ahead. Her parents have a long road ahead. While their story is devastating, it's not unique. Each year we set aside one week, one Sunday, to specifically bring kids like this to the forefront. We want to be a voice for the voiceless. Today is that Sunday. Today is Orphan Sunday. And this little girl I just told you about is a modern-day orphan. As of, of Tuesday, she's an orphan with two living parents. She's an orphan because her mom and dad's addiction leaves her vulnerable. Their brokenness leaves her neglected. And their inability to care for her leaves her uncovered. During the month of November, we'll be working through a four-week sermon series called Activate, where we get really practical, 
about what the heart of God looks like, especially toward the vulnerable, the poor, the outsider, the foreigner, the widow, and today the orphan. In, in August, we spent time in Psalm 23 talking about what it looks like to dwell in the presence of God, to become rooted, to belong to him in our personal life. And then we moved on, and in September and October, we talked about uh, when we're rooted in Christ, when we belong to Christ, what do we become? What does that start to look like? We talked about the fruit of the Spirit and the things that grow out of our lives. And now we're going to continue that same momentum, and we're going to say, okay, these things are growing out of their, our lives, but why? And it's to feed the hungry. It's to clothe the naked and the vulnerable and the exposed. So this morning I want to do three things. First, I want to show you a difficult truth about the way that the world is. We got started with that already. Second, I want to share with you a beautiful truth about the way our God is. And finally, and most importantly today, I want to invite you to arrange your life in a new way that lines up with these two truths of what the world is like and what our God is like. First, I I want us to see how bad things are. And then I want to see how good God is. And then I want us to wrestle with what to do about it. I want us to look out in the world and, and see the brokenness that's there. I want us to look up and see the goodness that transcends that brokenness. Then I want to look inward and ask, where do we fit in? Before we jump into that, let's pray. God, my heart sinks when I think that this girl is is one of hundreds of thousands in America that is struggling and alone, uncovered and, and needing to be welcomed in and looked after. God, this morning, would you break our hearts for the things that break your heart? Would you give us clear steps and a clear pathway toward being the kind of church and the kind of community that you've called us to be? God, this is a hard week. This is a hard message. This is a hard truth. And I pray that you would Give us the grace to hear it, not to soften it, not to ignore it, not to sugarcoat it, but to hear it and to ask, God, what would you have us do? In Jesus' name, amen. The reason I started with that story about the phone call and the little girl is this. It's easy to forget what the world is really like. Every week, Kyle reminds us that every single one of us is going through a battle, right? And it's true, and it's so right. But not many of us are battling for basic shelter, battling for our next breath, battling to stay alive. We tend to be comfortable. We work so hard to insulate ourselves from pain and hardship that we can actually forget that this planet is cursed. We crank up the furnace in our houses and forget that the world can be cold and wild and dark. We put a fresh coat of paint in our living room and we forget that the world is literally falling apart around us. We, we can build these miniature, stable kingdoms that we can rule over as we tell ourselves the world is predictable and it's safe and it's filled with light. 
The thing is, the, the more safe we make our little world, the more likely it is for us to catch ourselves living as if we believe that, that if God is whole, then the world is also whole. And if God is good, then the world is also good. We do, it, we do whatever we can to mitigate the immediate or obvious effects of sin and death. We keep our lives relatively safe. We socially, geographically, relationally distance ourselves from things that hurt, from need, from scarcity. But what we end up with when we ignore the badness of the world is a generally pleasant life that is comfortable on the surface, but, but missing out on a huge part of God's design, of his plan for us. In order to say that the world is comfortable, we have to ignore huge cross-sections of our population. We have to overlook our own brokenness and our own sin. In order to say that the world is blessed and happy and virtuous and lovely, we have to skip verses and chapters and entire books of the Bible that describe it as cursed and filled with darkness. So, so what is the world like? There are 400,000 orphans in foster care in the United States right now. Each child has a different story. Many have been in care for years. Many of them have been in care just for a few days, maybe since Tuesday. Some of them will be adopted. Some of them will be reunified with one or both of their parents. Some of them will move in with a distant relative. Some of them will stay in a foster home until they turn 18 and age out of the system. And each of these children's parents has a different story, right? Some of them are struggling to take care of their child because they themselves are a child, 13, 14, 15 years old. Some of them can't take care of their child because they're addicts. Some of them are on the run from the law. Some of them are in prison. A huge number of these parents never knew their own parents. And many of them spent time in foster care themselves. The world is broken. The world is painful. The world is not whole. We know this, but it rarely sinks in before we get distracted. Life is distracting. I want to go back to the story I told about my phone call with our foster agency and the little girl. I remember where I was during this conversation. I was sitting at work. I was sitting at my desk having this conversation. I'm asking Tim questions. I'm taking notes. I'm Googling these medical terms that I have no idea what he's talking about. I'm imagining my daughter in this little girl's shoes. I'm fighting back tears at my desk. I'm having a moment. And right in that moment, I get a little notification on my computer screen. Bloop. It's a new email in my inbox, and this is what it says. Urgent request. How fast can you send me that photo of the cheeseburger? I need it ASAP. Thanks. I work as a graphic designer, and, and there was a particular image of a particular cheeseburger that a particular client had misplaced. I began wiping away my tears and dutifully searching for said burger. <laughs> Maybe you're thinking what I was thinking in that moment, right? Cheeseburger? Urgent? Really? Life is distracting. The timing of these two conversations was just too perfect. The, the juxtaposition of this girl's heartbreaking, truly urgent story and my client's request, which seemed to be not so urgent after all. Of course, 
the client's not doing anything wrong. She's just doing her job. But, but it was a truly transformational moment for me. Maybe you've had a moment like this. It was a moment for me that I realized in a profound and personal way that I'm living in two different worlds. That I'm well-fed, but around me there are people who are starving. That I'm well-loved, but all around me there are people who are aching. Aching for care. That they would cry out, but they can't. They would ask for help, but they don't have a voice. So Our hope for this Activate series is to take that moment, that realization, and, and break it out into practical, life-changing steps that we can take together as we pursue what it means to follow God. So that's our second question. So if the world is broken, what is God like? Even when we create a safe bubble around ourselves, sometimes the bubble gets popped. The devastation and depravity in our world is often too big to ignore. A global news event, a heartbreaking story like the one I just told, an unexpected loss, even our own mistakes, that that one we thought we'd never make, those things bring us face to face with how bad things really are. And when we're confronted with this undeniable brokenness, we can end up convincing ourselves that God isn't to be trusted. That if, if the world is broken, then God is also broken or worse, he doesn't exist. See, the most common reason people who don't believe in the existence of a good God will give for their disbelief is this. They can't accept the idea that the God of the Bible could be when they look around and see what they see. Famine, war, injustice, violence. They correctly and honestly observe the chaos around them. But they blame God. But, but what if God sees the chaos too? What if his heart is grieved when he sees a child neglected? The Bible portrays a unique worldview that is so compelling to me. It tells the story of a world that is literally cursed. It doesn't shy away from the devastating details of sin, the, inevit- the inevitability of death, and even the seeming futility of existence itself. It also tells the story of a loving creator God who is passionate about protecting and uplifting the down and out, who sees and provides for the homeless and the hungry, and who against all odds comes to earth to embody poverty, loneliness, to be falsely accused, to be abused, to be murdered in order to create a pathway for the entire, entire world out of darkness and into light. The story that the Bible tells satisfies both the realist and the hopeful. The the realist who can't ignore how bad things are and the hopeful who feels deep down like that's not all there is. Christianity sees the world exactly for what it is and it presents us with the only kind of God that could ever rescue it. It explains how lost we are, but it also shows us the only way home. What is God like? God identifies with the poor and the powerless. He's on the side of the outcast and the hurting. There's this story in the Old Testament where God's people, they're complaining. Even after all the ways that we worship you and serve you, you feel distant and unresponsive. You're not blessing us the way that we thought you would. What happened? This is how God replies. This is in Isaiah. He says, is this... Is not this the fast that I choose, 
to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. If you take away the the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness. And your gloom be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. This is my favorite part. And your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. That last part, I love the way that Eugene Peterson paraphrases it. He says, if you're generous with the hungry and start giving yourselves to the down and out, your lives will begin to glow in the darkness. Your shadowed lives will be bathed in sunlight. I will always show you where to go. I'll give you a full life in the emptiest of places. Firm muscles, strong bones. You'll be like a well-watered garden, a gurgling spring that never runs dry. You'll use the old rubble of past lives to build anew. Rebuild the foundations from out of your past. You'll be known as those who can fix anything, restore old ruins, rebuild and renovate. Make the community livable again. Make the community livable again. When I read that response from God, I see that God seriously shows up in communities that are serious about caring for the poor and forgotten. I see that God is ready and waiting to bless and strengthen those who are willing to uphold the weak and give what they have to people who have nothing. That is the heart of God for us and for the vulnerable. We sang this song this morning, Anchor. There's hope in the promise of the cross. God gave everything to save the world that he loves, and it's an anchor in the storm. And what do people do that are anchored? They anchor others. Is that hope just for us? God is obsessed with helping the needy. When we share in his obsession, we experience him in a completely different way. He says, when you satisfy the desire of the afflicted, I will satisfy your desire in scorched places. What he's saying is this. When you lay down your life for those in need, you're doing the kind of thing that I love doing. And when you do the kind of thing that I love doing, your life makes more sense. Your purpose is clearer. And your days are brighter, not because they're easier, but because they are filled with the kind of actions that you were designed to do, the kind of priorities you were designed to have. Those of you who know me know that I love to worship God through music. It's such a powerful way to experience God's presence, but when I read this passage from Isaiah, it resounds with me. Because the most powerful, impactful times of worship I have ever had were not on this stage, 
They were completely silent moments. No music, no yelling at the top of my lungs. 3 a.m. in a rocking chair, in a pitch black room, rocking an infant to sleep. Quietly praying, Jesus, let this one be yours. Go with him wherever he goes. Follow him. Chase him. Be with him. Cover him. Please let this one be yours. And in moments like that, God shows up. What is God like? He's the ever-giving God. The one who laid down his life so that we can live forever. He's the ever-trading God. The one who became our sin so that we can become his righteousness. He's the ever-creating God. The one who takes the rubble and wreckage of broken lives and builds something new and beautiful out of them. And he's the ever-chasing God. The one who pursues the rebel and the lost and the lonely and brings them home. So if we can see clearly that the world is broken, we can see clearly that God has a passionate desire to make things right, our last question has to be this. Where do we come in? Again in Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. What's happening here? This is a prophecy about Jesus from the Old Testament. And and sometimes when we look at a prophecy from the Old Testament, we have to do a a bit of investigating and forensics and connecting the dots to, to find what's really going on. But this isn't one of those cases. And the reason for that is in Luke, Jesus opens up a scroll, he reads this passage, and he essentially says, this is talking about me. This is talking about what I'm doing right now. So, so when, when it says the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, the me is Jesus. When he says that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the they is us. Jesus what he's doing here is he's saving people so that they can help in the redemption of the world. He's giving us a firm foundation from which we can repair families, restore cities, rebuild devastated people. He's saying the world is falling apart and he wants us to put it back together. He's saying the world is hungry and he wants us to feed it, that the world is shivering and cold and he wants us to clothe it. He's saying the world is dying and he wants us to breathe life into it. He's saying the world is running away from God, but God is chasing us, that he's chasing me, that he's chasing you. If you search the Bible for verses about the poor and the needy, what you're not going to find is a lot of verses about praying for the poor and the needy. You're going to find a lot of verses about giving them money and giving them food and welcoming them home. 
1 John 3.18 says, Let us not love in word or in talk, but in deed and in truth. James, who, who loves to just tell it like it is, says, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and be filled, without giving them the things that they need, what good is that? What the Bible is basically saying over and over is don't talk about it, be about it. And I love the way that God's instructions to us can, can be so intellectual and philosophical at times and that sometimes they can just be so flat out practical. Do it. Again, James says, but be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and, and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. But then he forgets as he walks away what he looks like. He goes on to say, uh, if anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, the religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. We hear that verse a lot on Orphan Sunday and when we talk about the people that are in need. We hear this verse, real religion looks like this, visiting the orphan and the widow. But I want to actually focus on the verse, a couple verses behind that, where he talks about the mirror. Looking into the mirror and then walking away and immediately forgetting what we looked like. Life is distracting and it's easy to forget how much we have, how much we've been given how much we've been forgiven when we can look at our own brokenness in the face and see it for what it is then look to the cross and see that it's forgiven the result is a deep gratitude when we can look in the spiritual mirror what i see is this i am the hungry that's been fed i am the thirsty that's been given a cold drink I am the stranger that's been welcomed in. When we look in the mirror and see ourselves as the orphan that has been adopted, a profound gratitude rushes in. And gratitude is simply this. It's the difference between what could be and what is. It's the powerful feeling that comes when you see what you really deserve and what you really get. This kind of gratitude has been transformational in my life. This kind of gratitude changes everything. It sticks with you after you walk away from the mirror. Without Jesus on my own, I'm, I'm uncovered and I'm vulnerable. If I'm judged by my own accomplishments, my own reputation, my own behavior, I'm like the helpless little girl with the oxygen mask and a feeding tube, barely breathing on my own, barely standing on two feet. No chance to survive unless someone steps in. Unless someone takes my place. Unless Jesus takes my place. Because God himself became vulnerable and uncovered and exposed. Because God himself was neglected and forgotten and abused and tortured. Because God himself struggled for air and breathed his last breath. I will never have to. When Jesus died on the cross for our sins, he guaranteed that everyone that believes would be covered. Covered by his righteousness. Covered by his blood. First Peter says, Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you hadn't received mercy, and now you've received mercy. 
What do people that have received mercy do? They show mercy. What do people that are covered do? They cover people. What do people that are anchored by the cross do? They anchor people. So November here at Covenant Church is about seeing how broken the world is. It's about seeing how good God is and then doing something about it. This is an emotional morning. These are hard truths to wrestle with. But I also want this to be an extremely practical morning. And as I wrap up, I want to tell you about something you can do today for local orphans. We're joined today at Covenant Church uh, from, by local members of a nonprofit called Open Homes. Open Homes has really two goals. One of them is to increase awareness of children like the one I told you about who are waiting for foster homes, who are waiting for permanent homes, who are waiting for adoptive homes. The other goal is to provide resources to foster and adoptive families. So here's how this plays out today. Earlier I mentioned there's 400,000 children in foster care, and you're going to see about 50 of them today in the lobby, their faces in our heart gallery. Each of these photos represents a child that lives in northwest Ohio. We're not talking about uh, across uh, state lines. We're not talking about uh, in other countries, out of sight and out of mind. We're talking about Bowling Green, Ohio. We're talking about Toledo, Ohio. We're talking about Perrysburg, Ohio. We're talking about children that may go to school with your children. And you're going to see about 50 of them um, today in the lobby. And I want to ask you to read a few of their stories. It's a simple request. Some of them might have the same favorite movie as one of your kids. Some of them might want to be what you are when they grow up. And you can find out about what they're dreaming up and what they're hoping for in the future. One of our little boys on the heart gallery wants to be happy when he grows up. We're also so thankful to be joined by Christy Holtz this morning. She represents Adopt America Network, and she was instrumental in in us gathering the information that we're able to share with you about these children. Um, And she's going to be available to talk to anyone who just wants to learn more, who has questions, how does this work? How do I get involved? How do I adopt? What's the first step? The Open Homes, our, our mission is to educate people on, on four different ways you can get involved. We understand that not every family can be a foster family. And not only that, but not every, foster, not every family should be or is called to be a foster family. But what we want to do is we want to create an extended foster family. And so this is how it works. We have, we have what we call our, our four C's. And they're the caregiver, the champion, the companion, and the coach. A caregiver is probably what you'd think it is. They're the roof over the head of a foster child. They are the licensed family that has uh, done training and had a background check and, and are currently fostering children. We have resources and steps and connections to get you started if that's something that your family wants to look into doing. The next one is the champion, and that's a little bit different. They've also had a background check, 
um, but they haven't done any training. And what they're able to do is babysitting. And that sounds such a, uh, like a, such a simple thing, but babysitting and transportation for kids who are in care is a little complicated. For their safety, they can't just be babysat by anyone. They can't be driven to school just by anyone. And so if you're a caregiver, having a champion that's beside you that can do a carpool or, or do a, a date night babysitting is actually a pretty big deal. And maybe that's something that you'd be interested in doing. The next one is companion. And I just want to say that there's, there's 20, 30, 40 companions in this room right now. These are the ones that behind the scenes run errands, cook meals, donate supplies for foster families. These are the ones who are there the night the child arrives, setting up the crib, the Ikea crib that you can't quite. Taking one for the team. This whole thing works because there's an infrastructure of people behind the scenes. It takes a village, right? So maybe you want to be a companion for for a family who's doing foster care to be there, the person they send the text to. And it's not all fun stuff. You might be the person they text when they need the, the, the drywall patched. The last one is a coach. Uh, and, and this one is really the seasoned veteran parents, the sages in our community that are ready to give advice and lend support. They say, I know what it's like to have a baby that just won't sleep. I know what it's like to have a teenager that just won't get up. <laughs> I've been there. Let's talk. Let's chat. Here's a book. I've been there. And that's so crucial. We take for granted that, that our kids have all of these pieces in place. They have the uncle and the cousin. Who, who is in the background of the photos of your kids' birthday parties? We want to create that for, for the vulnerable kid who doesn't have a family. The support, the infrastructure that they need. I just want to say thank you to everyone who's played that role in my life and my family's life. My wife and I have been uh, caregivers for, for five different children over the last several years, some of them for weeks, some of them for, for more than a year. And during those times, we were cooked meals, we were prayed for, we were supported. We had babysitters. A family in this church actually just offered to give us a van. Here you go. You, you guys need this more than we do. We truly had an extended family around us that was interested in covering, with us, covering the children that were in our house. It's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing for me to have seen it firsthand. It's God mobilizing and activating people to be his hands and his feet to give whatever they have. If one of these roles sounds good to you, I would just ask you to talk to someone. I'm going to be around. There's going to be several of us around to just talk to. Get connected. Write your email address down. Start a conversation about what that could look like for you. And so uh, normally what we would do at the end of a uh, sermon is I'd ask you to stand up and we'd worship together. But um, I want to play a song. And what I want to invite you to do is, is to sit and to not try to learn, learn the melody and, and, and get distracted. Life is distracting. I want you to sit and, and just ponder how bad things are how good God is and wrestle with this question of of what are we going to do about it.